morning. Hopefully you guys have your Bibles turned to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you need a Bible, if you don't have one, uh, we have several out in the foyer. If you know somebody who doesn't have a Bible and you just want to give them one, uh, take it. If you want one to just keep in your car in case uh, you ever run into somebody who needs a Bible, take one. Those are, those are for you guys to take, so uh, feel like they are yours. Uh, today we are going to wrap up our study of First Thessalonians. We started it back in December, uh, and it's, it's June now. We took a couple breaks here and there, but uh, I think we've, we've covered it pretty adequately. One of the things that we've made note of as we've studied the past few verses is that Paul has saved some of the, the most important things to pass on to us for the end of the letter. There's really only been one major doctrinal issue that he felt like he really needed to explain to the Thessalonians that they maybe hadn't completely grasped yet, and that is uh, the day of the Lord, the doctrine of the day of the Lord, which, of course, starts with the rapture of the church. But Paul also wanted to encourage them and, and us to continue growing in their walk with the Lord. And so what he's done here is he's thrown just a a few quick pointers. These are kind of like bullet points that he's going through here. Uh, Some some quick points of advice uh, to finish up the letter. He told them, I know that you guys are great at at showing love for one another. This is back in, in the fourth chapter. I know that you guys are great at showing love for one another, but excel still more. You guys are good at it, but get better at it. Keep going. Uh, He also told them to make it their ambition to lead a quiet life. He reminded them of the importance of valuing their leaders and of living at peace with one another. He talked about uh, certain people and the certain needs that they will need, uh, those who are unruly, those who are weak, uh, being those that he's talking about there. And then we saw that he switched gears to an extent so that he could remind them uh, of how to respond to God, how to relate to God, telling them in the past couple of verses, as we saw um, a couple weeks ago, that they were to rejoice always and to pray continually, to pray constantly. These are the fundamental ingredients, the fundamental characteristics of a healthy church. Uh, The list doesn't stop here, however. We stopped a couple weeks ago at uh, Pray Without Ceasing so that we could have a prayer service, and by the way, in case you guys haven't seen, the names that we put on, uh, on the canvas up here, that's hung out in the hall. So I would encourage you guys, every week when you come in here, make sure you stop by uh, that canvas. It's, it's hung right across from the bathrooms over here. So make sure that at least when you come in on Sundays, you're taking a moment to pray for those people. But that was where we stopped last time. We stopped kind of in the, in the middle. Uh, it, it wasn't a natural place to stop, but I thought it was a good place for us to stop so that we could take some time to remember Uh, how important it is to pray. But there are still a few other pointers that Paul wants to give us regarding the attitude that we should have toward God. And really, that's where it has to start. It starts with our attitude toward God because we live in a broken world. And that means that relationships are going to be broken. But honestly, if our attitude toward God isn't right, then our attitude toward people around us isn't going to be right either. And those relationships are going to remain broken and strained. So Paul's going to continue writing in verse 18, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So let's back up just a little bit. 
because there are actually, this is the third command that he's given us in this set. First, he said, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything, give thanks. Why? Why, Paul? Because that's God's perfect will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, there are a couple ways that we can, that we can interpret this one verse. We have to remember, though, the verses weren't part of the original. That's something that uh, was put in there much, much later as a, you know, make, it, make it easier to reference. But some would say that giving thanks alone is God's will for us, and some would say that this is referring to all three of those things, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in everything. And that's what I think the case is. I think that these three things are what Paul is saying God's will for us is, to do those three things. But it's possible that he's just talking about giving thanks. But notice, first of all, that it doesn't say that we're expected to give thanks for everything. We don't have to give thanks for everything because not everything that happens in our lives is going to be good. You know, if, if somebody, if, if your neighbor hates your guts, don't give thanks that your neighbor hates your guts, but give thanks for, or give thanks in the situation, not for the situation. Uh, there, there's definitely a difference there. In all situations, give thanks. Because when we give thanks, what we're doing is we're showing the right attitude <laughs> toward God. We're acknowledging that we have received a benefit from somebody else that we ourselves don't necessarily deserve. And you know what prevents a person from having this attitude, from, from being thankful or being grateful? You know what really tends to get in the way of that? It's an attitude of entitlement or envy. You know, saying, I deserve what God's given me. So you feel entitled to what God's given you. You know, if you think that you rightfully deserve something, you're not going to feel thankful about it. That's just human nature. Uh, I mean, think about it for a second. Which situation here, which scenario would you be more grateful in? Let's say that there's somebody who gives you this watch that you loaned to them years ago. And years later, you get the watch back. That's the first scenario. The second scenario is there's this watch that you have wanted for a long time, but it's something that you know that you just can't afford, and somebody says, you know what, I'm going to give it to you, just for the sake of giving it to you. Not because you deserve it, but just because I want to give it to you. Now, which scenario is more likely to make you feel grateful? Well, with the first scenario, I think you probably feel entitled to the watch, right? Because you loaned it to him years ago, and for all those years, you've probably been thinking, man, I can't believe that guy still has my watch. He hasn't given me back my watch. And so you feel like it's, it's yours and you're entitled to it. So when he gives it back, you're like, thanks, but you're not really grateful, right? But the second scenario, it's this watch that you've wanted for a long time and you didn't have the means to get it. And somebody says, I just want to give it to you. Wow. You feel like you should do something back for them, right? That's what Paul's saying. Now there's a, a comedian... On, uh, on Conan O'Brien uh, some time back who was telling the story about how uh, he was flying, uh, he, he was on an airline flying, and as they were boarding this flight, uh, the, the captain announced that they were going to be having uh, free Wi-Fi for everybody. And this is something that was so new that nobody who was boarding the plane knew about, apparently. 
But so, you know, they were going to be able to get on Wi-Fi, which means, you know, they were going to be able to get onto the Internet from the airplane, which means they were going to be able to, you know, do business, uh, check email, and so on and so forth. So when they announced it, of course, people are psyched, right? Everybody's like, yeah, we're going to get free Wi-Fi, but it was something brand new. So 10 seconds after they turned it on, it shorted out because everybody turned their devices on all at the same time. So the whole thing shorted out. Uh, like 10 seconds after they said you are now free to turn on your portable electronic devices. And so when it went out, the guy who was sitting next to this comedian who was on Conan O'Brien started just cursing up a storm in anger. I mean, he was like really, really mad that the Wi-Fi would go out. And the comedian shared his thoughts on, uh, on this outburst. He said, how quickly the world owes him something that he didn't even know existed 10 seconds ago. Instead of feeling thankful, instead of feeling gratitude, for whatever reason, he felt entitlement, even though they, hadn't had to pay, they didn't have to pay more to get the Wi-Fi or anything like that. Now, there was an interesting study done back in 2002, which revealed that people who generally tend to, um, to express gratitude more frequently, to be more thankful in general, who tend to be more forgiving toward other people, they tend to be happier people, but they tend to be uh, less depressed also because they are more grateful. Those who are not grateful tend to be depressed more often and kind of bottling up hostility. See, ungratefulness is actually a characteristic, a quality of ungodliness. And I'd argue that if you are a Christian who does not feel grateful, constantly grateful, toward God, maybe you don't understand exactly how amazing his grace is. Maybe you don't understand exactly how ugly the situation was before he stepped in and saved you. So you don't have a right to feel ungrateful toward God. You should constantly feel grateful toward God because he has straightened out a situation that you had no way of straightening out on your own. Paul says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. This is God's perfect will for you. Why does he want those things for us? It's because doing these things, even in the face of really difficult circumstances, doesn't come naturally to us. It's not something that we just automatically do. It's an act of faith. When the storms of life come, and they will come, Life might be good now, but it won't necessarily be great next year, next week, tomorrow. When the storms of life come, someone with a thankful heart can rejoice always because they can trust that God is good and will work all things to the good of those who love him. Romans 8.28, because he's predestined those who love him to become more and more like Jesus. Now, was Jesus' life grand and and happy all the time? Absolutely not. Did he suffer? Yeah. This is what Isaiah said about Jesus. Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So it only makes sense that if we are going to become more and more like Jesus ourselves, there are going to be times when we're going to experience the same feelings that Jesus did. So when we're going through hard times in life, 
we can rejoice, we can pray without ceasing, and we can be thankful because we know that God is working in that situation to make us more like Jesus. See, the person who isn't grateful, the person who feels entitled to God's grace, is more likely to actually just feel bitter when life doesn't go the way that they want it to go. They're more likely to blame God and to feel bitterness toward God. And that is an obstacle between a person and their growth in the Lord. Let's continue. Paul writes in verses 19 and 20. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. So let's start with with 19. He says, do not quench the spirit. What does quench mean? Well, quench means to put something out. Uh, the, same, the same Greek word can be translated extinguish. Uh, some translations say, do not stifle the spirit. Hopefully you, you get the point. He's saying, don't do that to the spirit. Now, we have to remember that all of scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. And a prophet is someone who is used by God to deliver a message. At the same time, the prophet has the freedom uh, to deliver that message in their own style. How that works exactly is a little bit of a mystery, but it's really obvious when you look at Scripture in the original languages, for example. I mean, if you're taking an introductory class in Greek, you're probably going to be learning from the book of John, because John wrote in a very, very basic type of Greek. On the other hand, even advanced Greek scholars have a really tough time uh, with the book of Hebrews because it's written in a very, very advanced, very complicated form of Greek. So God is breathing through the prophets to write these books out, but at the same time, the, pro- uh, the prophets do have liberty to express uh, in a personal style, uh, to be different stylistically. Now, we should also remember that when this letter was written to the church in Thessalonica, all of Scripture wasn't there. They didn't have the Old and the New Testament. God was still in the middle of revealing his word. So how did they know what they were supposed to do with with this new Christian faith, this new faith that they had in Jesus? Well, they, they did have the Old Testament, and that, I think, offered a lot of help. But at the same time, God also gave some the gift of prophecy uh, to, for, to further instruct the people in the church. Now, of course, while, while these prophets, these people who are speaking on behalf of God, are among the people, Satan sees exactly what's going on, right? He sees that these people are saying, thus saith the Lord, and, and you know, fill in the blank. And so Satan sees this going on, and what do you think he does? He counterfeits it. He says, oh, okay, somebody puts a a thus saith the Lord on there, and then they say whatever they want. Well, you know what? I'm going to infiltrate their ranks, and all they have to do is say, thus saith the Lord. Right? So Satan counterfeited it. And so with that in mind, it's understandable that false prophets and true prophets would be somewhat difficult to distinguish between. And that some people might have been thinking, oh, boy, Here goes Joe again with this, thus saith the Lord stuff. It didn't pan out last time. I'm just, I'm not going to listen to this stuff at all. That would be the temptation if you've come across some false prophets. But Paul's saying, don't 
do that. Don't, don't even potentially quench the Spirit because sometimes God does speak. And if you, if you just boot it all out entirely, all together, before you even listen to it, you're not going to hear what God says. A few years ago, uh, I, I, was, I had moved to Arkansas to plant a church. And we, uh, one of the things that we wanted to do when we got there was establish kind of connections with, with other churches in the area. And so we went to a, an, an extremely Pentecostal church one Sunday, uh, which, which is fine. You know, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, it's, uh, it's not exactly my style. It's not exactly my thing. But, you know, we wanted to check them out anyway and just, you know, introduce ourselves. And uh, after the service ended, uh, somebody came up to me and my, my church planning partner and said, God has given me a prophecy for you guys God is going to do amazing things with you guys here. And he, he started listing off all these things that we were going to do. None of them happened. Not, not one of those things happened. But here he was saying God had given him this prophecy. Now, if I were to go back to Arkansas and go back to this church, I'd be tempted to, to say, come on, man. You made this bogus prophecy three years ago. It didn't happen. Obviously, you are a fake, and then I would refuse to listen to, to what they would have to say. That would be the temptation for me. But Paul's saying, hear it out. And, and we're going to get to what, what we're actually supposed to do. Now, a prophetic utterance can be a prophecy pertaining to the future in one sense, but in a more uh, general sense, it's any time somebody is uh, expositing the word of God from the scriptures. Anytime somebody is speaking the word of God, you might call that prophecy. Uh, Ray Stedman, uh, when, when he was preaching through this verse, uh, from the pulpit, he said, so prophesying really becomes what we call today expository preaching and teaching. It's what I am doing right now. It is opening the mind of God from the word of God, end quote. So in a general sense, it can be what I'm doing right now. And Paul's instruction here is not to hate or despise prophetic utterances. Instead, he gives us a very specific command for how to deal with prophetic utterances. He writes in the next verses, verses 20 and 21, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So instead of just kicking everything out the door and saying, I'm not going to hear it, la, 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 you know, take your, prophecy somewhere, take your prophecy somewhere else. He's saying, hear it. Listen to it. Test it. Listen to what someone says when they give a prophetic utterance. But don't stop there. He doesn't say just test what they're saying. He says test everything. Examine everything carefully. Does it line up with what we know about God? Does it line up with his nature and his will? And his plan? What about the person's life? You can scrutinize that too. So our instruction is to dig deeper and see if there's anything to it. Now Paul says examine everything. Examine their life, their walk. Examine their marriage, their relationships with other people. Is their walk lining up with their talk? That's really the question. And it's really... Kind of a shame that more Christians don't do this. Because if Christians were really uh, consistent about doing this, there would probably be no Christian television. Because honestly, if you're looking for junk, turn to your, your, your favorite Christian network. 
Because most of the stuff that keeps them in business is what you would call a prosperity gospel. It's a false gospel. It's garbage. And uh, it doesn't stand against the word of God. They, they are very good at twisting the word of God to make it say something that it really doesn't. Uh, you may have heard me say this before, but scripture is like a prisoner of war. If you twist it enough, it's going to say what you want it to say. You can make the Bible say anything, as evidenced by these guys on TV. But, yeah, they'd be out of business if Christians would more consistently examine everything. Now, the Greek word for good, he says, uh, hold fast to that which is good. The Greek word for good can also be translated as genuine or real or honest. So the instruction is to avoid your tendency, which we probably, a lot of us might have. Avoid the tendency to pass judgment on something until you're sure that it's genuine or not. It's amazing to think that even back in the first century, when Paul's writing this, even back in the first century, false teachers, false prophets were already coming into the church. But this wasn't just a problem that the Thessalonians were facing in the first century. All of the churches we're facing this type of stuff, and it's, it's something that we're facing today, too. But John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, he said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So if somebody claims to be speaking on God's behalf, go ahead and hear them out. Examine it. Test what they are saying. And if it lines up with God's word, You can accept it. You can build it into your life. You can live it out. How dare we ever toss out anything that's good and everything that comes from God is good, whether we like it or not. It's dangerous to reject something that's from God. On the other hand, if something is not good, Paul's specific command is to reject it. Toss it out. Don't receive it. It's good to have faith, but no, faith does not have to be blind, like just being gullible and accepting something just because somebody says it. Now, some have taken this to mean that we shouldn't have anything to do with a person who lives in darkness. We're going to come back to that here in just a minute. Uh, It is not telling us um, to abstain from people who are evil. Okay, But... What does it mean to to exercise this discernment that Paul is instructing us to have? Uh, Any of you guys ever notice that there are a lot of crows around here? (laughs) There are a lot of crows around here. Um, And and in fact, at the University of Washington, they started this interesting study where they found out that crows actually are are a lot more intelligent than you might think. Uh, In fact... They, they recognize people's faces, and they not only recognize people's faces, they have some way of communicating it to other crows, uh, what a person will look like. And so what, the, what they're testing is, hey, can we put like a, a mask of uh, bin Laden on, uh, on somebody and have him be real mean to some crows so that when they see this face of bin Laden, you know, of course, bin Laden is, is dead now, but this was back a couple months ago. Uh, you know, so that w- the, the crows would be used to kind of um, hunt terrorists because they would recognize somehow and communicate somehow this guy is a bad guy. Well, in order for them to, to, to train these birds to do this, they have to know what the bad guys look like, right? And in the same way, 
If you're going to use discernment, you need to know what you're testing it against. And in order to know what you're testing it against, you need to know what this book says. How do you know what God's nature is? How do you know what God's will is? How do you know what God's plan is if you haven't studied the Bible? If you don't know what it says, you don't know how to test it. So, with that said, I would encourage you guys, make sure that you are daily in the Word so that when somebody offers you a lie, a false prophecy, a false prophetic utterance, you're able to recognize it. Just like the birds recognize bad faces, you need to recognize bad teachings. And the only way that you're going to do that is by studying God's word. So we don't have to abstain from evil people, but we don't have to believe what they say. We're supposed to test it. Because if we were to abstain from all evil people, and everyone is evil, uh, without Jesus, we would be evil because we wouldn't be godlike at all. We wouldn't be uh, like God at all. But if that were the case, we wouldn't have anything to do with the world. And if that were the case, the gospel would never be spread. People would never be saved. So it's impossible to avoid any and all contact with every kind of evil because the world is evil. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. He said, I wrote you in my, early, in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So apparently Paul had written the church in Corinth uh, an earlier letter, which didn't end up in our Bibles, a letter which preceded 1 Corinthians. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. No, the message here is not to avoid evil people. Because those people need Jesus. Just like there was a time when each one of us was in their shoes and we needed Jesus. The point that Paul's trying to make here with the Thessalonians is just not to participate in something that's evil. You can be around them, but you don't have to do what they're doing. You don't have to say the same words that they are saying. And it also means avoiding temptations where you might be tempted. Use some discernment. Test what's taught. And you know what? Any teacher who is worth their weight in dirt is going to welcome that kind of scrutiny. They'll expect it. They will want it. Because they take the scriptures. They take God's word very, very seriously. I do hours and hours of work every week just to make sure that what I'm teaching lines up with scripture. If I'm wrong about something... Let me know. I, I want to be the first person to know. Not so that I can sweep it under the rug, but so that I can correct that. And I, I'm willing to admit I'm not always right. But I do hours and hours of work to be as right as I possibly can. And I think that anyone who's gifted as a teacher and takes the job of teaching seriously would say the same thing. Scrutinize anything that I say. A teacher needs to be teachable. And it's this type of scrutiny that Paul commended the Bereans in the book of Acts for having. Uh, Paul had gone to Berea, and he was teaching them about Jesus from the Scriptures, from the Old Testament. And what did they do? They didn't just accept it at face value. They listened to what he said, and then they tested it against God's Word. And Paul commended them for that. Now, just one final note before we move on here. That doesn't mean that you're going to agree with me about everything. And that's okay. 
I, I, I would honestly tell you guys that there are very, very, very few people that, uh, that I agree on everything with. Uh, there are just points of, of difference, uh, not on the essentials, not on things like the, the, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, uh, the Trinity, things like that. I'm talking about side issues. Issues that are maybe an issue of uh, interpretation or opinion, but which ultimately have no effect on a person's salvation one way or another. It's okay to disagree on, on anything that is non-essential. That's okay. And I don't expect you guys to agree with absolutely everything I teach. But if I'm teaching heresy, absolutely let me know. So, um, so Paul is basically saying, uh, swallow the meat and spit out the bones. If something's good, receive it. If something even appears to be evil, reject it. But if we assume right off the bat that it's all bones, we're not going to get the meat either. It's our job to find the balance. It's our job to make that distinction, even if it isn't always easy. Let's move on. Uh, Verses 23 and 24. Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. That's beautiful. I I love that. Uh, There's not a whole lot more that I think anybody can really add to that. I think it speaks for itself pretty clearly. But the only thing that I would ask you to notice is that the reason that we can put our trust in God, put our trust in in Jesus is because his work and his will can touch parts of our lives that others can't, that other people can't. He can, he can touch every part of who we are. He's able to minister to our spirit, soul, and body. And he's able to do that, and he will do that because he's faithful to his promises. You can trust in his faithfulness. You can trust that he's constantly working to make you more and more like Jesus just because of his faithfulness. Not because of your faithfulness. Because of his faithfulness. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 says, The Lord's loving kindnesses never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It doesn't say, great is my faithfulness. You won't find those words in the Bible. Compared to God's faithfulness to us, our faithfulness to him is non-existent. Now, I really think that this is such a beautiful uh, passage. This is probably where you could say the letter officially ends in a way. And I don't want to minimize the rest of the letter. This is all uh, inspired, breathed out by God. But the next few verses are really kind of a postscript. And if you read the commentators, some of them say, you know, there's obviously a, a, a drastic change after this verse. And they'd say, well, you know, it looks like maybe what happened is Paul would have somebody else write out the letters for him. He'd be, he'd be speaking, and somebody would be writing down what he's saying. And it looks like at this point, according to some commentators, uh, Paul said, give me that. And he wrote the rest of this himself. So there, there's definitely a, a change in, in tone a little bit here, but it's, it's kind of like a postscript. It's almost like Paul had written, P.S., next verse. Brethren, pray for us. P. 
P.S. Pray for us. Paul loved knowing when people were praying for him. He found strength in that. He was encouraged by that as any uh, Christian leader should be. I think any pastor teacher would say the same thing. James said, you have not because you ask not. And so I'm going to be as blunt and straightforward as I can possibly be and say, I desire, I covet your prayers for me too. For me, for my family, for the board of of, uh, elders here, for those of us who are, are leading this ministry, please pray for us. We desire your prayers. Next verse, verse 26. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Uh, no, guys. Uh, awkward. Uh, no, but, but seriously. Um, this was a cultural thing that the Thessalonians would have done. It's something that would have carried over from Jewish culture where men would greet each other with a kiss on the cheek. Um, it, it's not something that, uh, that was exclusive to Christians. It's something that uh, they had been raised on culturally, and so they carried it over uh, into their Christian life. It would basically be the equivalent of a friendly uh, sideways hug or a handshake in our culture today. Uh, but just a, a, a friendly word of advice, if you choose the, the hugging option, make sure... Uh, guys, especially, that you keep it um, short and in good taste. Uh, as a pastor, women, don't take it personally, but uh, I'm really careful about hugging because, I mean, you guys know um, that if, if a pastor hugs a woman twice as long as he's hugging the guys, you know, somebody's sitting there with a stopwatch saying, oh, look how long he's hugging the women. So I'm really, really, really uh, careful about stuff like that. Um, but... Yeah, it's basically the same as a handshake in our culture today. And make sure that your hands are, are clean when you do this. Nancy told me, <laughs> this is, uh, this is uh, the announcements, the, the, the prelude for the, uh, for the announcements, or the, the follow-up for the announcements, that uh, maybe the guys aren't washing their hands as much as they should. If that's the case, just make sure that you're the last one to eat the cookies out in the foyer. Um, <laughs> but, Yeah. Greet one another with a holy kiss. In our culture today, it's a handshake. Um, and now a kind of strong command uh, that he's going to start wrapping things up with. He says, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. In other words, this isn't a letter that the leaders were supposed to hoard. It's not something that they were to keep for themselves. No, he's basically saying share the truth of God's word. And I have absolutely no doubt that as this was being written, Paul knew that what he was either writing or saying, depending on if he was writing it or dictating it, he knew that this was coming straight from the Holy Spirit. He knew that this was inspired. So he says, make sure to have this letter read to all the brethren. I think we've done that. We've read every word from this book, except for the final ones. Verse 28, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Notice that he he ends with with grace. He also begins with grace. Chapter 1, verse 1. Grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. So the book starts with grace. The book ends with a word of grace. 
and real life, true life also, begins and ends with God's grace. My prayer is that we would not only be a church filled with people who are saved by God's grace, but that we would be a people who live every day, every moment by his grace. May his grace be at the center and the motivation of everything that we do. Remember this. People who know God's grace should be the first to show God's grace. With that in mind, my prayer is that grace would be something that we are known for and recognized by. Because that's what it's all about. Let's pray. Lord, as we finish up our study in uh, 1 Thessalonians, we thank you that this has been preserved through the ages. And we thank you for all the, uh, all the insight that it offers us into uh, ourselves and our life as a body of believers. God, I pray that this book would uh, do more than inform us. I pray that it would transform us, that it would make us uh, more desiring to please you, more desiring to serve you, that it would just cause us to be more in love with you, Lord. We thank you for the example that the, that the Thessalonian church set. <clears throat> God, we want to be faithful to the calling that you've given us, and we pray that you will continue to make each one of us individually more and more like your son, Jesus, so that when we come together, we can be faithful to the calling that you've given us to go into the nations and make disciples. God, we love you. We thank you for this study. We pray that you will uh, continue to bless us in future studies. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. We see you, beautiful, your beautiful, your love is sweet and beautiful, and I will stay here waiting for beautiful, beautiful, your beautiful, your love is wild and bountiful, yes, all I need. More of my beautiful Jesus love Say worshippers You want love Say worshippers So alive And desperate at your feet Jesus love Say worshippers We are love Say worshippers And our hearts Desire will be complete 